Okay, so here we go, we hope. December the 12th, 2021, lecture discussion number 158, I hope, on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. This is going to be the final lecture of 2021, but I shall return January 9th, 2022, to somewhat quote General Douglas MacArthur, March 20th, 1942. MacArthur returned uh, October 20th, 1944, which was a couple years later, so the dates don't exactly line up. He was gone for two years. I'm going to be gone for three weeks, I think. Okay, what am I talking about? Because we're going to be on our annual winter solstice discontinuity, uh, I thought it best to... Uh, Use this metaphor. I'm going to lease an excavator today to clean up the debris pile that I have accumulated over the last months or so. And as you know, I won't exactly make any significant process or progress. Sorry, not process, progress. I'll just be moving the piles around in order to give the impression that I have correlated the fragmentation. And when I, in actuality, the only thing I've done is uh, uh, displacement. In other words, to simplify, some same clutter, different locations. Uh, the actual an analogy, I guess, have you ever gone to Costco only to, only to discover that they have moved everything? And you have to wander through the entire warehouse store to find where they hid the mustard and the, and the dill pickles. And then Costco does this on purpose. That's their plan. The principle is to make you traipse around to the point of exhaustion until you abdicate all resistance, and then you buy 20 pounds of peanut butter. That's their plan. And Costco got that from me. Because I'm older than Costco, and it's not even close. Anyway, that's the... Uh, Oops, I lost my sound. Nope, I got it back. Anyway, such is the so-called uh, plan for today. The Costco plan. Well, I, I thought I'd start with the meanings of remember, the totality of the word, specifically when God assigns remember to himself. When he says that he remembers, that is a very significant situation. And last week I spent a lot of time in Genesis 9. That's the sign of the nomadic covenant where God says, Genesis 9, 14 through 16, I shall, I'm sorry, it shall be when I bring the cloud, the cloud over the earth, that the colors of the rainbow or the color rainbow shall be in the pillar of cloud. Now, I've, I am making the point, I did last week, that the cloud that he's referring to is the pillar of cloud, not just any old cloud. He, when he speaks of clouds, he has many opportunities to be more specific. And he says, I will remember my promise, my covenant, which is between me and you, Noah, and the descendants of Noah, Genesis 9, 8 through 9, and every living creature of all flesh. So this everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh on the earth. That is the humanity aspect, and that is, of course, the animal kingdom as well. Now, when you consider what God means when he implies an attribute to himself, in this case, it is, imputes would be a better word than implies, when he imputes an attribute to himself, in this case, it is remembrance. He says, I will remember my promise, remembering. Now, I keep in mind, he's the Exodus 3.14. The 3.14 of Exodus is the I am, that I am. Something, of course, as you know, that Christ constantly says, I, the I am that I am, Revelation 1.8, the timeless one. That's what that I am means. You've heard me say that for years and years and years. It's a time reference. 
The I am's in the present. The one who conceived time. That's what he's telling you. I am the one who conceived time. And he is in authority over time. He's outside of time. He, he can view time as motionless if he wishes to do so. And so we've got to be really careful not to ascribe our puny human definition of remembering to the infinite, omniscient, pre-existent God of all creation. He doesn't remember like we remember to make it more human. Our, our remembering is not his remembering. His thoughts are not our thoughts, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. That's going to be a theme for today, Isaiah 55. Eight, eight through nine. His thoughts, his ways are not our ways. Our thoughts, they're not the same. There's no similarity, actually. For example, do not apply forgetfulness to God's remembering. He does not forget. When I can't remember something, it's because I have forgot it. That's not how he is. When he remembers something, it isn't because he forgot it. So remove the humanistic, the anthropomorphism of humanity away from the deity that is God. He knows all things. Christ says... Matthew eleven twenty seven that no one knows the Son except the Father. Think about what he's saying there. No one knows the Son except the Father. What's he mean by that? Right off the bat, you recognize that it's a triune verse. He's representing the triunity of God in that statement. Only omniscience, I'll help you out, only omniscience can know omniscience. Christ knows all things. He's omniscient. The only way you can know Christ is to be equally omniscient. That's the way, that's what they mean here. You can't know me. No one can know Christ because of that omniscience, that infinity. Infinity is equal to infinity. Jesus Christ created all things. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. John 1, 1 through 4. Christ upholds all things. So he's holding all things. Hebrews 1, 3. Thus, therefore, knowing Christ demands that you have an infinite mind. And that's why he says, no one can know me. No one knows the Son except the Father. Psalm 147.4. Wonderful verse. Everything is a wonderful verse. I shouldn't say, try to say something is more wonderful than others. Psalm 147.4 says that God counts the numbers of stars. He counts the number of stars. He calls them by name, it says. He counts them. I want you to think about that. He counts them and then he names them. That's what Psalm 147.4 says. How many are there? We've done that in the past. There's 200 billion trillion stars. And God names them and counts them. How fast does he do it? How fast can he name and count things? And remember all of it. He calls them by name, all 200 billion trillion. Christ, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45, gave every star that he created a name. That is an incredible thing. Note the correspondence to Genesis 2.19-20. The first Adam named each and every animal, didn't he? God brought the animals to him to name the first Adam is a type of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, Romans 5.14. So Adam is a type. And there's long been this thought that the stars being named by Christ, by that, that, that relates to Genesis 2.19, Adam's naming of the animals. Most theologians have made that connection for centuries. But also to Revelation 2.17, which is the hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name. He's naming stars. And there's been, always been thought that 
every star that he gave a name had some kind of correspondence to something else. So uh, what I'm saying and what I'm proposing is that Christ, who searches the mind and the hearts of all mankind, Genesis 2, I'm sorry, Revelation 2, 23, he's the judge of all things, all people, all everything. He's the ultimate judge. He's the one that has all the judgment assigned to him, John 5, 22, because he knows all things, John 19, 28 and John 21, 17. So he is qualified to be the judge of everything because he knows everything and no one can know him except the Father who is equal to him in omniscience. And the Holy Spirit as well, of course, that's a triune voice, uh, verse. To know the one who knows all things requires knowing all things. How's that for simplicity? That's why no one knows the Son. That's a declaration of deity when he says that. No one knows the Son except the Father. He's saying, I'm God. For all of you out there who think that he never said that he was equal, that he is God himself. I should interject that many commentators reduce the scope of John 19.28 to that which directly uh, refers to the Old Testament prophecies regarding the crucifixion. And they say, well, that's all he's talking about there. When John says he knows all things, he's only talking about the prophecies with regard to the crucifixion. Crucifixion. Get more water. But that's obviously not true. What is the whole purpose of the book of John? It's to declare the deity of Christ. That's all what he wants to do. Make sure that you know that this is God himself. That's, he says it over and over and over again. So I'm saying that the Apostle John knew better. John knew that Christ was creator God. John 1, 1 through 4, right? That's what he wrote. That's how he began his gospel. He said Christ knew all things. When he said Christ knew all things, obviously John meant all things. All means all. And again, that, that comports with only the Father can know the Son. Again, the first... I'm sorry, the last Adam, or the first Adam named every animal. The last Adam names 200 billion trillion stars. And that's what we think exists. We can't be sure because we can't count them. He named, he, he counted them and he named them. That's what the last Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ did. So there's obviously some kind of connection to the naming of animals. There's no doubt about it. And of course, every human being has a name as well, right? The hidden manna, the new name. The white stone. And so that has to have some kind of impact here, or not impact, but that has to be somehow connected to the 200 billion trillion stars that have been named individually by Jesus Christ. As I said, this begins to explain that hidden manna and the white stone in the new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it, Revelation 2.17. Now you know why he's doing that. I've asked that question over the last few months. What is the meaning of the hidden stone? What is the meaning of the name? The hidden manna, sorry, and the white stone and the new name that is written on the white stone. What's the meaning of that? It's got an unknown name. And scholars, the commentators, recognize Jesus Christ gives these things to those who overcome. In other words, Jesus Christ gives everything, everyone who a white stone, hidden manna, and a new name on the white stone that is saved. The white stone with the unknown name are equivalent, therefore, to some kind of identification or some kind of, some say, admissions path. Are we in kind of some kind of difficulty there, young lady? Um, but the only thing is that uh, right now, sermon audio, sermon audio and the feed from them to Facebook is really choppy and almost non-existent. So we're recording. Uh, so 
the best thing we can hope for is to uh, let it go and let them try to fix their problem when they have it, and then keep on recording and uh, put it up for them to them all right. Okay. I don't know if you heard that, but apparently we're having uh, uh, sermon audio is not functioning properly, and nor is Facebook. Is that? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, the feed to Facebook is, is the same as the feed. So we have some kind of uh, feed interruption at Sermon Audio and at Facebook. And so this is being recorded. And so Dave promises to get it up within a couple of years. So so that'll be, that'll work out. Uh, we do have a, a more reliable device than Facebook or Sermon Audio right there. Okay, it's just the way it has been for quite some time. We, we just can't seem to get through all these things. It's just it's the way it is. You're relying on other operations to be... Consistent, and that's not happening very often. Where was I? Jesus Christ gives these things, the white stone, the hidden manna, and the new name that is written on the white stone that nobody knows but him. Does anybody have any idea what he named the stars? 200 billion trillion of them. No, we don't know. We have a a white stone that has a name on it that he's the only one that knows it. So you begin to see the correlation, the relationship, the conformity, if you want to think of it that way. And again, as I said earlier, the, the scholars believe that the white stone with the name on it is some kind of identification system. You have a name on a stone that allows you entry into the new city So it is of Jerusalem. So it is essentially a a key, if you will, or a pass. All who receive that unknown name on the white stone with the hidden manna are saved. They are citizens of the new city of Jerusalem. And obviously the one who wrote the names of the believers into the Lamb's book of life, he would know the names of everyone who's believing. He is the Lamb of God slain out of the foundations of the world. He would remember all the names. He wrote them all down in his book. Now, he didn't do it to remember them. He did it to make sure that we know that they're there. He's going to remember all the names. Duh. He is the Lamb. Revelation 13.8. If you put remember to the Lamb of God, the judge who sits on the great white throne, Revelation 20.11-15, you, you've got to pay attention to what you're saying. Because what he says, remember, he doesn't mean what we mean, as I've said just a few minutes ago. It's best described or defined as to enshrine or to memorialize, to recognize. You could actually use the phrase to treasure. Uh, if he if he memorializes you, he recognizes you and he treasures you and he enshrines you, that is salvation, which is exactly what the Lamb's Book of Life is trying to depict. That's eternal life. As God defines eternal life, Revelation 22.4. His definition of eternal life and our definition of eternal life are not the same. Life for him means that you are in the new city of Jerusalem with him. That means his name will be on our forehead, on the foreheads of the saved. Of the foreheads of the citizens, if you will. The foreheads of the occupants of the new city of Jerusalem. So, okay, back to Genesis 9.16. God will honor, he will cite his everlasting covenant with the everlasting animals every time he sees the colors that he puts into the pillar of cloud. And again, we have that long discussion about what color really is. 
Color is a function of the mind. It is a function of consciousness. It is a spiritual component. It is not a physical. It has no physicality at all. <coughs> there, excuse me. Therefore, the basic elementary question comes about now. Now, did does Jesus Christ name each and every animal that His breath of the Spirit of life is in Genesis seven fifteen and Genesis seven twenty two? Adam named every single animal. Did Christ name every single animal? He says, I brought the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. Which implies what? He has his own names. He's named the stars. Would he name the animals? He put his breath inside the animal. He named us. That's right. You have a name that he that you don't know. So he's named every human being that is saved. Has he named the animals which are all saved? As he demonstrates over and over again in Genesis 9. 722 of Genesis, 715 of Genesis, 120, 124, 121, 128, 130. He constantly tells us, Ecclesiastes 3, he constantly tells us that he is saving the animals. Uh, 36 of Psalm 5 through 7. So again, the question, Jesus Christ, did he name each and every animal that he has his breath of the spirit of life? I think it's obvious the answer to that. As we have discovered, the animals did not, will not, rebel, reject, disbelieve Christ. Romans 5.14. They won't do it. They haven't done it. They are the even over those who had not sinned of Romans 5.14. They are in the curse, but they did not sin. Did the one who named each and every star and each and every one who has believed crystallize this? The saved, the redeemed, will he, did he name each and every animal just like Adam did? People ask me all the time, how do you have this position that Adam named each and every animal? Because, as Terry just pointed out, he named each and every of, of us that are saved. And the animals are saved. So it's obvious to me that he named each and every animal. That means all of my dogs, I'm going to have to change their name to the real name. Which name would I like to use? The one that I thought of or the one that he thought of? I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to submit to his positioning. Um, so the answer is obviously yes, duh. Yes conforms to uh, the way God thinks. He doesn't think like us. It conforms with, the, with God's thoughts and ways that are greater than the distance between the heaven and the earth. Isaiah 55.9. Again, his thoughts and his ways are a distance away from ours that is greater than where the heavenly estate is from where we are. That is an incredible distance and very likely is the outside of the universe system. The heavens are on the outside. So that is an incredible distance. The distance between the heaven and the earth, Isaiah 55, 9, is that distance, his thoughts from our thoughts is that distance separated. To repeat from a previous lecture, animals and children, instant heaven. Boom. And that incredible distance that we probably can't even begin to calculate. Most people would say the distance of the, well, many, many times the, the, uh, the astrophysicist community has said that the universe uh, is infinite. It's not. It's in the hand of God. That's how small it is. It's a speck inside the hand of God. But uh, there's this incredible distance between the earth and the heaven where God is. And that 
incredible distance is traversed without time expiring when he brings a child or an animal to him. In other words, children and animals are brought to God's presence before time can move. The arrow of time is frozen. That's how fast they go, so to speak. Do you think it is possible that the God who created the animals put his breath of the spirit of life in their nostrils just like he did the same process described for Adam and mankind, 2.7 Genesis, 7.22 Genesis, Ecclesiastes 3.18-20. through 20. Do you think, is it your view that this person that did that, God, who names every single animal as he names every saved man, woman, and child, do you think that he... He remembers with the revealing of a conscious experience of this color spectrum. Every time he looks at the colors that he placed in the pillar of cloud, he proclaims that the animals are everlasting to him. Do you think that that guy, I know this has become a protracted question, isn't it? This is a 45 minute question. Do you think, how can anyone hold the position that the person of God who I just described, who is doing all of that, could erase or extinguish his animals, remove their existence? How can anybody make that case? Is existence even removable? That's my first question to them. But they all say, well, they don't have existence. The one that put his breath of life in, inside of them, that named every single one of them, is going to erase them. That's their position. It drives me absolutely out of my mind. As you can tell, I'm starting to get mad just thinking about the, the conversations that I've had and how many times I just wanted to scream. I, I can make the case that if he removes his, the existence from an animal, if it was, go ahead and concede the premise that they have. And Dave said something pretty interesting to me a couple Sundays ago. It might have been last Sunday. I asked a question uh, to him. I said, how many pastors have you had that had this position on animals? And he said, you're the only one. And that agrees with my experience. I know there are others out there. I've read them. I've listened to them. But we're rare. We are the, uh, the definitive minority in this particular position. But I can make the case that if he removes their existence... And that's the ultimate murder, isn't it? He takes all they have. And in this case, it is the murder of the innocent, those who did not sin, Romans 5.14. That's what you're saying about him. Now, I repeated this question from previous weeks that I just gave you because of the subtle disrespect that's inside of it. It I'm inclined to call it contempt for the character and the goodness of God that has infected the church of this age with this position that animals are doomed to the removal of their existence. And you go back to Exodus 17, 1-7. Did you bring us out here to kill us, kill our children, kill our animals? And the church today says, yes, it's exactly what you've done. And God responds to that in Exodus 17, 1-7 with... with they, they, what they had done was extremely grievous. Jesus Christ is resurrection. That's what he is and life. I gotta write that down better. We're gonna to get to this soon. By soon, I mean within an hour. Resurrection and life. That's what he is. He says so, John 11:25. He embodies resurrection unto life. Notice how I said that, because there's resurrection unto death. 
It is who he is, what he does. His name literally, Yahshua, literally means salvation. Salvation literally means resurrection unto life into the new city of Jerusalem for all of eternity. That's what resurrection means. He will save you, or sorry, salvation. He is going to put you, he's going to resurrect your body, put you and your body back into the same kind of condition we are somewhat in now and then you will be a new city of Jerusalem for all of eternity and that's how he defines salvation and life and resurrection that's his definition yet the church of this age and notice the selectivity of that statement the church of today how's that the contemporary church the the mega church all of these purpose-driven churches all that stuff the church of this age predominantly teaches that the erasure of animals and children is a fact Doctrinally. And I don't know what to say. How can, and I just keep asking this question, how can the remembering, omniscient God erase the information of a living soul that He created, the living creature? How can He do it? Not, not, not can He do it, but how can He do that? You see, you're attacking His character again. You're, you have contempt for Him. You're describing a murderer. Why would He do that? That's my next question I always ask him. Ask them, why does he, why would he do that? What's your, what's his motive for doing it? And that's where I came up with this. Is he, is he not able to resurrect them or is he not willing? Remember that question that I've always asked? And they usually say he's not, both, they'll say. But mostly he's not willing. That's an attack on his character. He remembers them, he names them, he puts his life inside of them, his breath, his spirit of life inside of them, and then he erases them. That's their position. It's indefensible. Why is it not possible? Because I said that it, uh, it, why would he do it? That's allowing that it is possible? And it isn't possible. Why isn't it possible? And what I'm saying there, let me repeat that because I said that really badly. How can the omniscient God erase the information of a living soul, a living creature that he put his breath of life in and he remembers as ever asked, everlasting in Genesis 9. How can he erase them? Why would he do it? And that's allowing the premise that it's a possibility by saying, why would he do it? Because it isn't possible. And that becomes now, why isn't it possible? Why is it not possible for him to erase something that he has made like this? And if one concedes that the erasure of information is impossible, because you see, information cannot be deleted from existence. It cannot be. I should refine that statement a bit. Uh, that in classical physics, information can appear to be destroyed. People will say, well, I can destroy information. I can render it to dust. For example, the body goes to dust and that means it's destroyed. It's gone. It's been erased. No, it hasn't. It's dust now. The information is still there. Information can appear to be destroyed in the classical sense, in the Newtonian sense. But in the quantum realm, Information cannot be created or destroyed. It's, it's called the conservation of information. It's a law of quantum physics. Similar to the conservation of mass energy in classical Newtonian physics. And since you brought it up, and by you I mean me, the law of conservation of information is in compliance with Genesis 131. See, I have this wonderful law of conservation of information.
And Genesis 1.31 absolutely nails it. Long before anybody ever thought of it. Genesis 1.31 is the completion, the end of creation. And therefore, with John 11.25, the resurrection and and Revelation 21.1-4, the resurrection of the first heaven and the first earth that have passed away, we see that Genesis 1.31 is describing the conservation, the law of conservation of information. Whoever wrote this Bible, the author, the word, John 1, 1, really knew about the law of conservation of information. In fact, all of physics. Okay. <clears throat> Enough of that deviation. Where, where was I? Jesus Christ does not erase. He doesn't do it. Consider the mathematics of resurrection. I brought this up earlier also because there's always math, always, never not math. If Christ is the law of conservation of information, notice how I said that. If Christ is, in fact, the law of conservation of information, we have a law. We have a law of gravity, for example. Is he the law? Is he the gravity law? Is he the law of the conservation of energy and mass energy. Is he the law of the conservation of information? He says that he is John 11.25 again. I should just put John 11.25 up here all day long. When he says that he is the resurrection and the life, he is describing the law of conservation of information. I am the resurrection and the life. What's that mean? That information is still there. And he's going to go get it. It's always there. It's never lost. You can't lose it. Let's say it in another form. He is the one who resurrects the body and reinstalls the breath of the spirit of life into the resurrected bodies. Ecclesiastes 12.7 And the reason there is no erasing of information is because Jesus Christ will not erase information. He won't do it. It is a decision of his will. He's immutable. He does not change. For I am the Lord, I change never, Malachi 3.6. When God says he forgets the sins of the saved, in case somebody's screaming that at me on the Internet. Well, they can't scream at me now from the Internet, can they? They're, I've completely eliminated them screaming at me. They're fantastic. But those out there say, wait a minute, he forgets the sins of the saved. His forgetting is not our forgetting. Back to Isaiah 55, 8. Quit putting your forgetting to his forgetting, your remembering to his remembering. They're not the same at all. Not even close. How much information is in a human or animal body of 30 trillion cells? The brain has 80 to 120 billion nerve cells. Okay? That's a lot, in case you're wondering. Do you think he's numbered all the cells in your body? Yes. You think he named them? Yes. He likes to do stuff like that, doesn't he? If he counts them, he probably names them while he counts them. If you say he doesn't name them, then you're saying he didn't count them. If you say he counted them, then you've got to be saying he named, named them, right? He puts naming and counting the same. Psalm 147.4 The brain has 80 to 120 billion nerve cells. That's the nerve cells. That's the number. And that's what we think. We can't be sure. We don't have any idea. We're just stupid humans. But we're doing what we think was right. And we, we pretend we know things when we really don't know anything. The brain has 80 to 120 nerve cells. That's how many nerve cells. But now, how many functions have occurred in, in just the brain? Because there's more than just the number of cells. That's information. But what else is information? That's right. It's the thoughts. 
in those nerve cells. I not only have the nerve cells, but I have the thoughts those nerve cells are interacting with. So now I have to count those. I've got to count the thoughts. That's right. And the, the, the information that I'm trying to point out is not just in the physical. It's also in the consciousness. It's also in the immaterial or the spiritual, if you will, the non-physical, the immaterial. You see, there's this number of cells, 30, uh, 30 trillion cells, but there's also the functions, the movements of all those cells, the interactions, the communications. All of that is information. How much information is in a human body or an animal body? And all of that information is conserved. It must be preserved. The law says information is conserved, the conservation of information. So where is it stored? Where is all that information? Who stores it? Better question, who stores it? Who has it? Contemplate the enormity of one resurrection. All the thoughts, all the interaction of the cells, the cells themselves. That's one. What's the mathematics of that? Take Lazarus, for example, just for fun. Then realize there are many, many billions of resurrections coming. That's why no one can know the Son but the Father, right? No one can count the mathematics of one resurrection, much less how many he is going to do, which is billions upon billions upon billions. And all those resurrections, um, they reside in one of two destinies, one of two destinations. The new city of Jerusalem, and the city of God of the living. He calls himself, I am the God of the living, and this is my city. This is the city of the God of the living. So what's that tell you about the lake of fire? That's the faith of the unsaved and angels and, and mankind. Notice I excluded animals again, Romans 5.14. They're not in the lake of fire. Not a single animal, not a single child are in the lake of fire. The city of the God of the living are the lake of fire. That's the two destinations. The lake of fire is the lake of the dead. The second death as God defines death. You see, life to God. Both destinations have eternity. Both are forever. Both are everlasting. But the life is in the new city, is with God himself. Death is where God is, has put those who have rejected him. Okay, for those who appreciate math, I'm looking around, no takers, one guy's pretending, <laughs> and he's really good at pretending. That's why we like him. <laughs> if I am correct, duh, and the new city of Jerusalem has multiple levels, that total one trillion acres, that's my 700 level position, if it has one trillion living souls, if there are one trillion living souls that are inside the new city of Jerusalem and there's one trillion acres of, of I'm sorry, of, of, of land, if you will, of, of, of multiple levels of land and, and just incredible beauty. So if I have one trillion living souls, and now that would be the faithful angels, the animals, and the believing humans, humanity. Note the difference in that. If I, if I got that, one trillion living, or I'm sorry, one trillion living souls and one trillion acres, to see how easy math is now, then every rabbit, mouse, elephant, bird, reptile, cow, dog, cat, lizard, picket, every one of them gets their own acre, 43,560 square feet. Every one gets an acre. <laughs> to get a deed, one thing. 
The sea creatures are in the pure river of the water of life, Revelation 22.1, and that flows throughout and descends to the earth. So it's in every multiple... If I'm right about the levels, duh. It's 1,500 miles high. There's got to be levels. The water goes all the way up to it, and then it comes down out of it and goes into the earth that's, that this city sits on, and it goes all throughout the earth. So the water which flows throughout... This water, this pure river of water of life, Revelation 21, 22.1, sorry. And that's how he describes it. Pure river of water of life. It's not poor English. It's exactly how he wants to describe it. Revelation 22.1. It flows throughout and descends to the earth, which has been resurrected and renewed. And that, that river is astonishing. It's unimaginable. And I cannot not notice. How's that for math? The pure river of water of life descending and ascending. It's ascending and it's descending. I can't help but notice that. Genesis 28.12. So the question becomes, who is this river of life? Who is the latter? Ooh, ooh, ooh. I know, teacher. I know. The one who said he was the ladder, Matthew 22:32. He says, "I'm the ladder of 28:12 Genesis." He says it point blank, can't miss it. John 2:12 through 11, Genesis 28:12. He also said that he's what? John 4:10 through 14. I am the living water. I am the pure river of water of life. That's what he says. He said he's both of those. And hopefully you've begun to notice the trend here. Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh, dwelling with his beloved. That's what he wants to do. It's just like when he walked in the garden with Adam and the woman. He wants to be with his beloved. Tabernacling. That's why we have a, the feast day of tabernacle. He is the light of this city. He's the water of life. He's the tree of life. All of, all of Revelation 21 and 22 testify of him. The tree of life, perhaps the most obvious. He's clearly the tree of life. <sighs> Do you suppose now, let's think this way. How am I doing for time? Wow, I'm out of time. Okay, I, I did not accurately assess that. Okay, we're good. Felt, felt like I was out of time. But I got so much time that I can start dinking around here a little bit, huh? Okay, so let's try that. Um, do you suppose if there was a tree of life in the Edemic Garden of Eden, Adam had a tree of life, right? He's the first Adam, First Corinthians 15. Jesus Christ is the second Adam, or the last Adam. Actually, it's a more, more correct way to say it. He's the last Adam. There will be no more Adams after him. So he's the last one, but he's also the second one. And the first Adam, he had a tree of life, right? Did he have a pure, witter, a pure, pure river of water of life? If the, if the garden that is the new city of Jerusalem on the earth has a relationship to the garden of Eden that was on the earth, and the garden of the new city has a water system, did a pure river of water of life, did the original Eden garden of the Adamic, not the satanic garden of Eden, not the Ezekiel 28 mineral Eden, but the organic Eden, did that also have a river of water of life? What do you think? Well, it's obvious, I think. I submit it's got to be so. Revelation 21-22 is intrinsically tied to Genesis 1-3. through he is, he's, he's bringing them both together. He's letting you see how many gardens did Adam have? 
He had one. How big was it? How many gardens will you have? Well, all of us, that's why I called it a gigantic Garden of Eden, didn't I? Well, we all have our own garden. Are you going to have to grow potatoes? And take care of animals? I think it's obvious what he's doing. I have, I have uh, many times attempted to illustrate the full extent of John 11.25. And I'm going to do it here right now. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. Oops, I am the resurrection. That's four. And the life. How many is that? Ooh, four plus three. More math. Okay. He now he also says, "Do you believe me, or do you believe this?" And that's powerful too. But the I am, just the I am, is incredible. The I am, that's I am. That's the first two. The resurrection. Oops. The life. Oh, sorry. I always left out the most important word. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Probably a coincidence. Probably a mistake. This is God Himself that said it. Probably I probably left something out. The I am is incredible because again it's a, it's talking about his authority over time. He is the one that conceived time and installed it, and he is outside of it. It's in the present tense. He is the only being in the present tense that exists, that's ever existed, and he's always in the present tense. He can see time from out from from a vantage point, a place of a frame of observation that is outside of time. He has complete total authority of it. So that's what he says. I am. The resurrection. It's inconceivable. The enormity, the mathematics, the law of conservation of information. He's also saying by the, that I'm the only resurrection. There's no possibility of resurrection unless I do it. I'm the it. The only resurrection. And this and is absolutely amazing. I'll get to that in a minute. It's unbelievable that and. The life. He's the only life. He's the breath of the spirit of life. Resurrection is not the same as life, in a sense. Actually, in truth. And then he says, do you believe this? And that belief, of course, is grace and mercy and salvation. And, and it's a great question. Everybody has to answer it. Every human being will answer that question. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Every human being will have to answer, do you believe this? They will stand before him and say, yes or no. And that, and, and that and is unbelievable. I can't even begin to be describe, describe it. It's a chi in the Greek. K-A-I. Monumental. Stunning. It goes ego, ami, he, anastasis, chi, he, zoe. The last word is zoe. Life. Zoe. Hi, Anastasius, Amy, which means the being. He's the being from which all beingness derives. So, 
we're going to start at number seven because it's always good to go to the end of the book, find out who did it, and then work your way back, right? That's how you should, should watch TV. Speed forward, find out who the bad guy is, and then go back to the beginning. So you never mind. Um, <coughs> excuse me. We're going to start at number seven. The Greek word for life is zoe. Z-O-E. I've pointed out that our English word for the study of animals is what? Zoology. Isn't it interesting that the word Zoe is there? That means the study of the life of animals. I suppose that the one who spoke this word that was translated Zoe knew its final connectivity to animals. And I suspect it made him joyful. Because he knew what he was saying here. Of all the words he could use for life, he uses one that is attached to the life of animals. Now, we don't know. Some people say he spoke Aramaic, but obviously everything that he spoke, whatever language, and and I have the position that he spoke Hebrew, right? But everybody heard whatever he said in their own language. That's the miracle of, of languages, not of tongues, of languages. You can call it tongues if you want, but it's the hearing. The miracle is in the hearing, not in the speaking. Almost the complete opposite of what we see today in the church. You have to hear in your own language what is being said. It's completely understandable. He spoke and everyone heard them, heard him in his own language. Of course, that's replicated in Acts by the, uh, this, uh, the apostles. Okay, now that. For today, he, he, I think he understood that he, that, well, obviously he did. He's gone. He looks upon his colors in his pillar of cloud and it makes him pleased. He says that because colors reveal consciousness and consciousness reveals ex, uh, uh, existence and existence reveals resurrection and will. But for today, there's this and Kai between the anastasis and the Zoe. And being weird, when I saw that Anne there all these years ago, when I saw it there, I, I, I want to know why. That was my first thought. I want to know why this, uh, this is there. I, I, you will sign the papers. That means nothing to everybody listening, and that's exactly how I want it. One might think there is a difference between the resurrection and the body I'm sorry, the resurrection of the body and the breath of God. Because he said the resurrection and the breath, didn't he? Because the, the life is in the, the spirit of the breath of life, right? The resurrection of the body and the breath. So he's bringing up the body and the breath at 11.25. The resurrection of the body and the breath of God. The dust and the breath of the spirit of life. That's exactly Genesis 2.7. So 11.25... 11.25 of John is exactly, is equal completely to Genesis 2.7. It is the same thing. Let me get a better seven. It is identical. Again, the God person that's doing this is he's really lucky or perhaps he is the God person. He's omniscient, infinite, timeless, and omnipotent. I would suggest you go with that. Obviously, only the body needs to be resurrected because the spirit, soul, mind, consciousness, the silver cord, that's a beautiful way it's described in Ecclesiastes 12. The silver cord, the personhood returns to him who gave it. Both have information. 
But it's different information. One is a spiritual information. It's thoughts. It's not material. It's not physical. It's an idea. It's love. It's feeling. It's understanding color. That returns to him who gave it. That capacity, that ability, that essence, if you will, that goes back to him and it's not physical. But the body gets resurrected, but only the body gets resurrected. In other words, the physical body returns to dust. The spirit stands before Christ. John 5.22, Revelation 20.11-15, 2 Corinthians 5.10, 1 Corinthians 3.9-17. Jesus is the judge. He's the ancient of days. Daniel 7.9-10, Revelation 1.12-17, Daniel 7.22. He's the ancient of days. He's described that way. That's the judge. He's going to judge all of mankind and the angels who left their dwelling tent. Judge, Jude 6. 1 Corinthians 6.3. All are going to be subject to the judge, the ancient of days. And now we've got a million questions. Because mankind and animals are binate. They're dualistic. They have a physical body which demonstrates a consciousness within the body. In other words, the body's purpose is to reveal the mind. What you do with your body reveals what you think in your, in your mind, your thoughts, your consciousness. The thoughts of the spirit would be a better way to put it. Or the soul. Whatever you want to use, consciousness, mind, whatever. They're all the same in my view. All of this is something that everyone who has listened to Cliffside for 20 minutes knows. I am relentlessly, relentlessly presenting Genesis 2-7 and John 11-25. And I'm doing it because they are the exact same verse. And I hope you recognize uh, the reason he put the chi between the Anastasis and the Zoe. It's because resurrection is proof that he never annihilates. Never. He would not call himself the resurrection if he annihilated anybody. Anybody, one person was annihilated, he would not be the resurrection. The resurrection requires that all, there is no room for anything but total resurrection. Resurrection means total resurrection. If it's not total resurrection, then what is it? It's partial resurrection. And if it's partial resurrection, then it's not resurrection. It's like sin or perfection. If you have one sin, you're a sinner. If you're perfect, you're not. He has no sin in him. He resurrects everything. Resurrection is proof that he never annihilates. He does not or does not erase his living soul. He remembers their body. That's not that's not forgetting his memory. Is not the, his remembering is not the same as our remembering. He does not forget those that have gone to dust. His that have gone to dust and he finds every single dead body. He then replaces, once he has that body, he replaces the blood in that body with his life blood. That, of course, is communion. Matthew 26, 26 through 29. This is my blood. This is my flesh. He puts his body, or our bodies, he makes them uh, eternal. He renovates them, the body of the saved. Note how I said that. The saved are going to be eternal in these new bodies. They're going to be changed. It's a body that is suitable for the new city of Jerusalem. We have no idea what that's going to be like. We can't even imagine. The animals will be likewise enhanced. The lost, however, the unsaved, the unbelieving, will not receive a glorified body. Only the saved and the animals are raised in glory, raised in power. 1 Corinthians 15, 39, 15, 42 through 44. It says definitively that animals are raised in glory. They're glorified. Christ intentionally, because omniscience eliminates impulsiveness, for example. 
Christ has will. God has will. His will is incorporated into his omniscience. In other words, when he does something, his omniscience is there with his will. Our will is uh, not omniscient. It is melded to stupidity most of the time. We have no idea what we're doing. And we have to know that. Come to me humbly, he says. My ways and thoughts are the difference between the distance of the earth and the heavens on the outside of the universe. That's how much greater my thoughts are, my ways are, than your ways. Anyway, Christ willfully separated the resurrection of the body from the life. From the reinstallation of the life, the breath of life, the spirit of life. Therefore, again, reduplicating Genesis 2.7. That's not an accident that he keeps taking us back to 2.7. Okay, more fun questions. Really fast, as I define fun. Angels don't multiply. We know that. No baby angels being born. So the number of angels that were created is uncountable. Hebrews 12.22, Daniel 7.10. Uncountable. Can't count the number of angels. Only God can count them. Only God can know it. The Hebrew language doesn't have the ability to convey to convey uh, infinity or an innumerable amount of information. It can't convey it. The Hebrew language is limited that way. So it's restricted to saying ten thousands of ten thousands when referring to numbers that cannot be conceived by humanity. The point is, huzzah, a point. A number. The number of angels is the same. Two-thirds remain with God. One-third have chosen the lake of fire. But the sum total of the angels is the same as original. Haven't lost any angels. Haven't gained any angels. Now, you can't lose an angel anyway. Again, angels don't and didn't multiply. Now, Genesis 6 is something completely different. I am aware of that. That's multiplication. But that is an abomination. And we don't know how exactly those Nephilim were formed, but we know that that's genetic manipulation at the least, but it doesn't imply there's a demon possession. I know there's a demon possession view. I, I've got Henry Morris. I've read his view. I don't think it fits. Uh, you can throw rocks at me later. But angel, um, animals don't and didn't multiply. They can't. But animals and humans do multiply. Why the difference? Why didn't he do the same thing with the anim- animals and the humans that he did with the angels? He didn't. Why not? Were angels made from dust? I ask that question all all the time. Because I am aware of fencycladine. Fencycladine. Which is what? Angel dust. Right? PCP. So everyone who went there on the internet can stand up now and bow. Say, we thought of that joke already. But obviously angels are ministering spirits. By definition, they're non-physical. But yet they have this appearance of physical beings. Ezekiel chapter 1, book of Revelation, can tell you that they have physical beings. They can somehow function in the spiritual reality, yet they're spirits. They seem to be similar to the, that seems to be similar to the intermediate state of animals and humans. When we die, we still are recognizable. We're still able to function in the spiritual realm. Animals and humans can function in the spiritual realm without bodies. There's no body. There's no intermediate body, as I pointed out before. But yet there's still recognition. There's still functionality. We can talk. And angels can do the opposite, if you want to think of it that way. Angels are able to be seen and speak and blow trumpets and travel with horses and chariots, 2 Kings 6.17. Albeit the horses are, fi- are horses of fire and chariots of fire. 
what are horses of fire? I asked that question a long time ago. What are they? Are they non-physical intermediate state horses? Chariots of Fire is not just a movie. It's an angelic implement of war, Revelation 12. Anyway, why did God re-begin with an empty earth that required this multiplying and filling? Why didn't he just poof everybody into existence and we're all there? He knows the number. He knows the names. He's counted everybody. Why not do it instantly? He didn't. He put it inside this time system, this 7,000 years. Make no mistake. God means to fill to overflowing. In other words, when he says multiply and fill the earth, he wants it filled to the absolute brim. He doesn't want it half filled. He doesn't want, he wants it completely filled. He loves living beings. So think about now the new city of Jerusalem. He wants it filled to overflowing. How many is that? In other words, humanity and animals will also reach numbers that only God can count. So if you want to think of it this way, I have this uncountable number of angels, I'm going to have the same uncountable number of humans, and I'm going to have the same uncountable number of animals. Is that how it's going to work? Or is one going to be greater than the other one, a little bit less? How's he got it worked out? He's got a plan. How many stars are there? How many cells are there? How many brain nerve cells are there? What's he doing? Again, this speaks of the census of David, Second Samuel 24. Remember the three choices of David, all of them bad choices. He chooses the plague. But God says, don't count. Don't count the, the, he went out and counted. You don't have the atonement money. You don't have the silver. You don't have the blood. Don't count without the blood. You gotta count the blood. David said, no, I don't. I'm gonna count everybody. No, you're not. Can you see how that fits in with the lake of fire and the new city of Jerusalem? Do I have to explain that? I hope I don't. Humans and animals are to do, are to, are to reach this number known only by God over time. Not like the angels. The earth is inside of time this time. I want to know when, when he installed time. Obviously, the issue of time is central to the question. When was the new city of Jerusalem prepared? Notice how I said that. I didn't say created because I can't have creation past Genesis 131. Now, if you want to say it was created, then you have to say it's before Genesis 131. I don't think that it is. When was it prepared? Because the Bible calls it prepared. What it does, it says, okay, I'm going to answer the question. When was the new city of Jerusalem prepared? Answer to that question is not an answer. It's the same time as the lake of fire, which is also prepared. The Greek is literally saying, having been prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. So when was the lake of fire prepared? I'm saying that when it was, that's the same time that the new city of Jerusalem, they are side by side. There's a reason they are side by side. It always made sense to me that God would follow the template that he established in Genesis, which is what? So what is side by side in Genesis that is equivalent to the city of New Jerusalem and the lake of fire? If you yelled out, if you yelled out uh, the tree of life and the tree of surely die, Genesis 2, 9 through 17, then you got the answer right. Tree of life, tree of death. Surely die death. City of life, city of death. Or lake of death, whichever you prefer. The angels, both faithful and fallen, would have seen the relationship between the city of life and the city of death and the tree of life and the tree of death. They would have picked up on that. They're really smart. They're not like us at all. 
they know the relationship and assign it to Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, Psalm 10, 13. They would know. Last one for, for a couple of weeks now. Won't be back until the 20th, uh, the 9th of 2022. Was Christ surrounded by animals at his birth? Now you've seen all the nativity scenes, right? We had a church down here, it's 11 below, they're going to be outside with donkeys. How that pastor does that, I'll never know. We couldn't get cliffside to go near that. We'd all be out there with propane heaters. You know, we'd insulate the, the little thing that they do out there in the corner. But they all stand out there in the freeze of death and they have live animals. Now they started to have just cardboard animals because, you know, that animal doesn't even want to be out there 11 below. But was Christ surrounded by animals at his birth similar to what happened at Mark 1, 12 through 13, that wilderness occasion? He is surrounded by animals. How many animals came to see Christ in the wilderness? What's the answer to that question? Everyone that could. All the animals came to him. Because they know what he is. He's the resurrection and the life. He's going to get them out of here. They're suffering in this mess. Now, a lot of people will say, well, he, Mary and Joseph, they, they, they went into a stable. There's arguments against that because the stables most of the time at that time were underneath the houses. In other words, the first floor of the house is where the animals were. And they put the animals there because of the theft and predators. So at night, instead of having a separate barn, they just brought everybody in, all the animals that they owned into the house and they shut the doors and locked them in there. So all the animals bed down in the lower section of the house and and the human beings were in the upper section, the upper rooms, if you want to think of it that way. And so when, Je- when uh, Joseph and Mary came, there was no room in the upper area, so they were down in the lower area. Was Christ, if, that, if it's just a house and not an inn, no room in the inn, I understand all of that, and, and I've seen the debates over and over again. Um, the songs are usually wrong, know that. There were not three wise men, there were thousands. Three gifts, thousands of the court of Daniel. But he likely makes sure that he is born surrounded by animals. I believe that's what he did. And I think that has tremendous significance. He keeps doing the same thing for the same reasons over and over again until we figure it out. Okay, see you in January 9th, 2022. God willing, Christ doesn't come. Creeks don't rise. Whatever else could happen. Earthquakes. Kidney stones.